0: Welcome to Vineyard Brisbane West Podcast. It's great to have you with us. In this series, we dive deeper into the narratives we hold about God. Narratives play a fundamental role in forming our identity, both for the positive or for the negative. So join us over the coming weeks as we explore the character of God displayed in the life and mission of Jesus. We're continuing our series tonight um, on the good and beautiful God. And we're looking at the next truth about God's character, and we're looking that will be that God is love. And in this series we've been working through um, an awareness that, ev- that every one of us has a picture of God in our mind and it's shaped by our experience, our um, family, our cultural worldview. Um, but sometimes that image isn't consistent with the God that Jesus revealed. In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I've got another verse. This is what John wrote. It's the Passion paraphrase. We saw him with our very own eyes. We gazed upon him and heard him speak. Our hands actually touched him, the one who was from the beginning, the living expression of God. This life giver was made visible and we have seen him. We testify to this truth. The eternal life giver lived face to face with the Father and has now dawned upon us. So we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard about this life giver. So that we may share and enjoy this life together, for truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus, the Anointed One. And we're writing these things to you because we want to release to you our fullness of joy. <laughs> Jesus perfectly displays the truth about God, and by identifying and addressing any false narratives or false stories about God that we have in our in our head, in our in our own mind, in our heart. We're on the path to transformation. And while it's possible to um, benefit from renewing our minds and practising spiritual disciplines on our own, we find deeper and more lasting change within community. We need the Holy Spirit and we need other people to help us see who we are and whose we are. I want to thank Naomi. Naomi's actually done most of the hard work in preparing these resource sheets that we've been handing out each week. Um, And they're not just for people who are doing the small group. We'll hand them out later on or you can come and grab one at the end. Um, They're not just for the small group. They're actually so that anybody, everybody can um, have an opportunity to dwell on um, a summary of the message and um, the main scripture and the truth and maybe some of the false narratives. It just gives us an opportunity to, um, to meditate on it during the week. Uh, and, it's, and if you can't come along to the small group, it's also a great place to start. Um, and if you want to grab one and grab a friend, um, grab someone else within the community, or um, or someone else that you regularly share with, and then use it as a starting point for discussion. Tonight we're going to consider how the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus demonstrate that God is demonstrated that God is love. And in the opening chapter of um, Sorry, in the, the opening of this chapter in the book that we've been basing the series on, um, the author tells a story about a pastor who received a call from someone asking if they'd be welcome into his church. And surprised, he said, well, yeah, of course, everybody's welcome in our church. And then she proceeded to tell him a story about her um, feelings of rejection from a, an, a previous experience that she had where she, where she had been treated by Christians as though... Um, she was not welcome because she was a teenage mum um, and she was single and, um, and, and the pastor was shocked. And most of us, I think, we would be very shocked and um, dismayed that that's her experience. But actually that underlying experience isn't uncommon and that underlying story is that God only loves us when we're good. So we're we're thinking again about performance-based acceptance. We learn it from a very young age and it is continually reinforced in the culture that we live. Jonathan mentioned this last week. If you perform well, you get rewarded in the workplace, in school, on social media. We're affirmed based on our success, our appearance, our possessions and then this all becomes part of forming our identity. And the world around us is continually pushing us to, um, to conform to its image, actually... But the truth is we've been made in his image. And it's possible that this might be feeling a little bit repetitive. We have talked about performance-based false narratives in previous weeks and I'll give you a heads up, it's probably going to come up in future weeks. Um, And why is this? At the heart of a performance-based narrative um, is the desire to determine what is good in our own eyes. I can make this work. I can do the right things and then God will love me. We like to be able to control things. So if we can tick off all the things that God wants us to do, um, then we can feel that we have more control. It's so important to see the, the truth that Jesus shows us about God and to continue to study it for the rest of our lives um, beyond this series. So tonight we're going to consider the parable of the prodigal son. Hey guys, look, do you recognise that picture? Where does it come from? It does come from the storybook Bible. To put this parable into, into context, um, I've just include, included the first um, couple of um, verses. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with, with such sinful people, even eating with them. In the mind of the Pharisees, these people were not the right type of people for Jesus to be associating with if he was in fact the son of God. It's quite similar to that story of the girl that I mentioned who wasn't the right type of Christian to be part of the church that she had been initially attending. So let's have a look at how Jesus responded. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a story. A man has two sons... And in the storybook Bible, it goes on to say, now one, one day, the youngest son started thinking to himself, maybe if I didn't have my dad around telling me what was good for me all the time, I'd be happier. He's spoiling my fun, he thinks. Does my dad really want me to be happy? Does my dad really love me? And now we're back on the slides. The younger son told his father, I want, sh- I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his, his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time, about that, the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the, his fields to feed the pigs. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robes in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And killed the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost and now he is found. The party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day if your father was dead, sorry, your brother was dead and has now come back to life. He was lost but now he's found. Who do you identify with in this story? Most people identify with either one of the sons. There's really three separate stories in this um, parable, isn't there? Kids, do you know who the father in this story is? God, yeah, God's a father in this story. And do you know what prodigal means? I I didn't either. It means recklessly extravagant. And the dictionary further defines it to being, um, oh, I've lost my spot, wasteful or scandalous in spending. But if we think about the love shown by the father, he was the most recklessly extravagant Smith points out in the book that he offered his wealth to an ungrateful son and then he lavished um, the son with love when he returned. I think that most, most people here will know that there are parts of this story that um, would have been very shocking to Jesus' listeners. Um, in, at that time for the son to ask for his inheritance would have been really, really disrespectful and it was the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead so that I can have my inheritance now, thank you. Um, and beyond the insult to the father, it brought significant shame to the entire family. So it wouldn't have been uncommon for uh, any child who um, had the audacity to say that uh, for them to be... Um, uh, whipped and, um, and thrown out, beaten and thrown out but the father said yes and then the son wasted it all and then to make matters worse he took a job working with, living with and feeding with pigs which was again a problem for Jewish people that we don't really understand now but it made him unclean so um, so it meant that he couldn't he, it was against their purity laws so he couldn't enter the, ta- the tabernacle then But if we look at the response of the father, N.T. Wright actually says that this parable should be renamed the parable of the running father because in a culture where senior figures are far too dignified to run anywhere, what is the father's response? Day after day, he's been sitting on his porch, straining his eyes, looking into the distance and waiting for his son to come home. When the son's still a long way off, his dad sees him and he doesn't fold his arms and frown and say, that'll teach you just you wait, come here and I'll show you what I'm thinking. He doesn't do that. That's not how this story goes. From the moment that he generously gives the younger son what he'd asked for through to that wonderful homecoming welcome, we see a really vivid picture of what God's love is like. And it's also consistent with what Jesus himself took to be the model of his own ministry He welcomed the outcast and the sinner. So coming back to that narrative that I mentioned at the start, God only loves us when we're good. If you're like me and you looked at the title of, um, for me, it was the chapter the first time I read it, God is love, my first response was, of course, God is love. I know that. But sometimes the narrative is subtle How do you feel when it's been a little while since you've thought of God or talked to God or read your Bible? Do you come bounding back into his presence as if you're the child of the king? Or is there a sense of shame? If there's even a a hint of guilt, then this narrative is coming into play. God's love is conditional and therefore our our behaviour determines how God feels about us. Or perhaps the moment that um, you sin, there's a sense that, that God's turning his back on you. And the only way that it, to then get him to turn around is to resume good behaviour. But the truth that we see dis- de- displayed in this parable um, and in the way that Jesus lived his life is that God loves sinners, not their sin. God loves the sinners. So it's not so much about a sinner getting saved as it is about a God who loves even those who sin against him. And it's the parable of someone coming back into relationship with their father God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. I think sometimes in our minds we bold the word words, whoever believes, um, because that's the bit that we can choose to do. I believe so that God loves me. <laughs> um, but instead we should be bolding, God so loves the world. And verse 17 reinforces it when it says, he didn't come to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Do you remember Jesus' response to the woman caught in adultery? He didn't say, go and sin no more and then I won't condemn you. He said, where are, where are the people who were condemning you? I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. What about the older brother? Sometimes we identify with the older brother because I I have identified with the older brother um, because the story doesn't gel with our sense of, our concept of fairness, and Jonathan mentioned this last week. Um, And this parable actually was um, directed at the Pharisees because they were so focused on the wickedness of the tax collectors and the sinners, and of Jesus too, for hanging out with them, that they couldn't really see what was happening. Because of God's love, um, everybody's, all of these people's lives were being changed. People were being healed, having their lives transformed physically, emotionally, morally and spiritually. But the grumblers could only see the litter, the rubbish, the human garbage that they would normally despise and they would normally avoid. N.T. Wright says, the older brother shows in his bad temper that he's got no more real respect for the father than his brother had. Once more, the father's generous, this time to the self-righteous older son. And Jesus wants to point out through God's generos- that though God's generosity is indeed reaching out to people that they didn't expect, that doesn't mean that there's nothing left for them. If they insist on staying out of the party because it's not the type of thing that they like, that's okay. But it's not because God doesn't welcome them in and love them as well. This sounds similar to me to another story, Cain and Abel in the Bible. Oh, actually, in our small group last week, we started talking about this. And Naomi pointed out that um, that there's a linkage with um, this story and the story of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament And if you're interested in this line of thinking, the Bible Project have a um, podcast all about the the interplay between the firstborn and the secondborn all the way through the scriptures and it's quite interesting. Consistently, God doesn't do what we expect and we need to trust him, don't we? So what's the false narrative here? That God loves some people more than others, those who do the right thing. The older, the older brother thought that he was better than the younger brother. There's a lie lurking there, isn't there? The older brother also said, I've never disobeyed your orders. There's a, there's a lie lurking there too. Have you, have you had a situation where someone you know has had their life transformed, but you know their past? Have you ever held judgement towards them because of um, your experience with their, them in their past? What about that story I mentioned a little um, at the start about this young single—sorry, the young single mum who has received God's grace and forgiveness but the church that she was a part of treated her as if she was tainted. So the, the truth that we see revealed by Jesus is that God is gracious to all. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in Romans 5.28, God demonstrates his own love for us in this way but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think I could make a pretty bold claim here and suggest that this this comparative story, this narrative, actually plays out in most of our lives some way. Don't we all work out to some extent where we fit based on everybody around us? Look at the way that person talks to their spouse, parents their kids, spends their money, uses their time, exercises, eats, holidays, studies, works. Look at the way that person does it. I think I'm okay. We don't need to compare ourselves with others. God is gracious to all and God loves us. Another narrative that came to mind this week um, was... ...sometimes we form our understanding on love... ...through our own experiences. Last year, actually, I was struck by the verse... Um, John fifteen fifteen. I no longer call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all the things that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. And when I've, in a moment, stumbled across that verse, I realised that I had been, in some ways, basing my understanding of God's love actually on the way that my friends had treated me all the way back in high school. And I would share some things with, no, they would share some things with me, but they wouldn't share Um, everything and um, not that they had to but you know you kind of feel a bit on the outer when some people seem to know everything that's going on and others don't and I think I think sometimes I still when I am seeking God's direction in my life there are still times when there's a small part of me that's just a little bit worried or fearful that maybe he won't tell me so I need to choose to accept God's truth in this area he's close by and he doesn't want to hide stuff from me So I can't base my understanding of God's love on my earthly experience. I I have to understand the truth about God that Jesus revealed. And the Bible says God defines love. God is love, he created love, and he loved us first. In 1 John 4, 7 to 13, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we should, we ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but we. but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And this is how we know that, we live in him and he lives in us. He's given us his spirit. He's so generous. So generous. So the whole, that whole chapter is great, but if we skip down to verse 19, we find a great truth. Verse 19 says, we loved because he first loved us, which is profound. We don't wake up one day and decide to love. God is love. He created love and he loved us first. We can't take any credit for the love that we show to anyone because he loved us because before we were capable of loving him, and we can only love others because of what he's done in our lives. And it's out of that great, generous and abund- abundance of love um, that we receive from him that we can then love others. Another narrative that I think is common in a lot of our lives is I am unlovable or I'm not worthy of love. Society tries to... Um, affirm our identity or, or it encourages us to assert our identity but God's truth is that you are the beloved. Um, just as we saw in the last narrative God defines love, God also defines us uh, and I have to repeat the, jo- the quote that Jonathan used last week because it's so beautiful, what God most wants is to see you smile because you know how much he loves you. I think I've been thinking about that all week. So the idea that you or I are unlovable or anything that kind of hints in this direction, it's an issue of identity. Um, and as I said, in our culture there's an increasing push to def- define who we are and define our own identity. But as Jesus followers, we know that we are who he says we are. We, we sing about that, don't we? I am who you say I am, God. I listened to... So apologies to anybody who was at the home group last week because you're going to hear it again, but hopefully it's a more concise version. (laughs) I listened to some teaching last week on human identity by Alexander Venter. Many of you will have heard Alexander Venter speak at the Vineyard Conference last year. And it's very good um, and there's lots in it. And if you're interested, you can find the links on his um, YouTube channel. But he pointed out some very fascinating aspects of Jesus' early life that I hadn't considered before. There isn't a lot written in the Bible about Jesus's hidden years, which are um, the years before he came, became part out of public ministry. But a lot of scholars are now giving this a lot of thought. Um, and actually, Alexander Vent is close to publishing a book on the historical Jesus. He states that Jesus brought kingdom identity to humanity which means the way that he lived as a human can teach us how to live as a human. We can learn from his, his life, his conception, water baptism, ministry, death and resurrection. But in terms of his human station in life and his conception, Alexander pointed out some things that I haven't really considered before. We know that Jesus was conceived before his mother's wedding, which was a big problem for Mary at, at that time. And I think I've often thought about that problem from Mary's point of view, But I hadn't really considered before the impact that actually, the ongoing impact that that would have had on Jesus in his life and ministry. Apparently Nazareth was a village of about 800 to 1,000. So if you've grown up in a small town, you you know that everybody knows everybody's business. I grew up in a small town, but the town I grew up in was probably more like 6,000. This is a very small village. And so Jesus... They were from Nazareth and they moved away for a period and they came back to Nazareth, um, but they were known in the community. So people assumed that Jesus was a mum's heir. I need to be very careful about the way I communicate this, considering everybody in the, here in the room. A mum's heir is a child of a union that's not sanctioned by biblical law um, outside of marriage. And mum's heirs were untouchable and they often ended up as servants. Actually, in Deuteronomy, it says, "No mumsir no shall ever enter the kingdom, the congregation of the law. Not shall ever; they won't enter the congregation of the law." And we know that Joseph stepped in in obedience, and this didn't happen to Jesus, but he still would have actually suffered ongoing rejection because of that station, like the gossip and the, you know, innuendo um, amongst the villagers and, and amongst the kids. There would have been gossip because the townspeople would have looked at Mary and um, her growing pregnancy, and they would have been able to do the mass. And the stigma wasn't forgot- forgotten. And so as I said, Jesus, when he was a child, he was probably teased, and he would have faced questions, and this actually did follow him throughout his ministry, because in John 8, they ask him, "Where is your father, John 8:19? Who are you, John 8:25?" We are not illeg- illegitimate children, John 41. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan, John 8:48? And And Samaritan was, um, had, they had previously been Israelites uh, in the Old Testament period um, and they lived in an area of um, Israel that had been overtaken and there um, was interracial marriages. So, um, So when they were asking Jesus that, there was a, Assumption that they were trying to, um, or something they were trying to suggest. If you're interested, um, and you'd like to, yeah, you should go on and have a listen to that teaching because there is more. And my, but my mind was blown when I heard this because not only do we see God's love in the people that Jesus chose to hang out with, he was with the outcasts and the sinners and um, the tax collectors, but he was born into a situation. And I know that we know he was born into a situation of lowly birth in the manger. But he was born, that status remained throughout his ministry and as he grew and developed, he chose to be defined by who God says he was and not by his human situation. At some stage in his childhood, he accepted the truth that God was his Abba, God was his real father. And we see that in the Bible, it talks about by the time he was 12, when he went missing and his parents had to go looking for him, they found him in the temple. And Mary Mary said, your father and I were worried. And Jesus said, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And then the very next story in um, Luke is his baptism. And God affirmed Jesus' identity. And Alexander Venter says that God got so excited that Jesus was standing up in the place of Israel to, to have his water baptism and identify with Israel's sin. He got so excited that he ripped open the sky and said, you are my, be- my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. Alexander says, all that Jesus dared to believe as he was growing up in his 30 years of formation in Nazareth, that God was his real Abba and that he was his son, was declared and confirmed from heaven at that time. And so in Christ, you are God's beloved son or daughter. He is pleased with you. He dearly loves you. He delights in you. Can you believe this about yourself? Can you receive it? God doesn't love you because you accepted Jesus or because you do the right thing. While you are still a sinner, Jesus died for you and he loves you. This doesn't mean that we should go on living as we please, but our behaviour doesn't actually change his love for us. As we see in the life of Jesus, in the people that Jesus ministered to and in his teaching, we see that God is love. And any other story that, or thought that we have in our mind that doesn't hold to that truth needs to be challenged. So let's stand and ask the Holy Spirit to come and minister to our hearts and our minds. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Thank you that you're here in our midst. Thank you that we have felt your presence during worship. Thank you that you have been here and that you're talking to us. Holy Spirit, I just ask now that you move in our hearts and minds and bring to mind any narratives that we're holding that don't line up with the the way that Jesus, the love that Jesus demonstrated. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So if anything's come to mind as we've been standing here, I'll just give you another moment um, to match up any false narratives with the truth that we see in Jesus so that you have in your mind the false and then the truth so that we can pray as we've been doing. Holy Spirit, would you reveal your truth? We're just going to take some time like we have every week to pray this prayer and if you can insert um, the things that God has revealed to you, we'll leave space there. And remember to um, forgive anybody that's come to mind that has contributed to you forming any false narratives. So let's pray. Lord, I confess that I've allowed false narratives to affect the way that I relate to you. I have believed the lie that I forgive anyone who's contributed to my forming this false narrative. I ask you, Lord, to forgive me for receiving this false narrative, for living my life based on it, and for any way that I have judged others because of it. I receive your forgiveness. I renounce and break my agreement with this narrative and any powers of darkness behind it. I choose to accept, believe and receive the truth that... Holy Spirit, I thank you for opening our eyes tonight. I thank you for continuing to teach us these truths and for helping us to really... Narrow in on the areas of darkness and allow your light to penetrate those areas. And I thank you that you are the light and you do penetrate the darkness. You do cast out the darkness. So I praise you for that, Holy Spirit. I just pray that as we um, go out now into our week, that you continue to show us areas where we're not, uh, where we're believing things that aren't um, right about you. I just pray that you um, continue to reveal how much you love us thank you for that love. Thank you that that you love us um, just as we are, and that your love changes us, but that you love us unconditionally. In Jesus' name, amen.